So glad you're with us for the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, and also glad to have Rob Long back with us for the Friday edition. As you know, Jim has been out on vacation this week. Rob is the co-founder of Ricochet. He is the co-host of the Glop podcast. He's the host of the Martini Shot podcast. Uh, he is a contributing editor at National Review Online, so uh, he does a lot of things, and so we're glad to have him with us again. And we actually have good martinis today, Rob. So you know, yeah, it's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but I, I seem so busy. I don't know what I'm doing here. I apparently I should be doing something else. <laughs> well, uh, you've clearly set your priorities very intelligently because where else would you want to be right now? And what's more important than doing this podcast, really? So, uh, so anyway, uh, as we uh, discussed just yesterday uh, on the podcast when uh, Emily Jashinsky, the Federalist, was here, there's a new narrative over at the uh, White House. Uh, the Putin price hike talking point didn't seem to work too well. The, hey, everything's actually going really well talking point didn't work well. Uh, the inflation is transitory situation uh, didn't work too well. So now they're telling uh, oil companies if they're really patriots, they're just going to lower prices because it's just that simple. <laughs> so, yeah, it's amazing uh, how um, uh, we go so quickly from uh, oil companies are bad and evil. And refine- we shouldn't build any refineries. We don't need any refineries. We don't need any pipelines. We don't need to explore. We don't need to drill. We don't need to uh, harvest our country's natural resources. <laughs> we go from that break. We'll do. Hey, why aren't you guys working harder? We need more <laughs> gas. What's going on down there? I mean, p- you know, people in California like the Canary and the Coleman, right? Because they, they pay higher prices than anybody. And, and there's two reasons for that. One reason is that just as California gas is a, like a very special environmental cocktail that you're uh, you, you, it's very, very difficult to do. So you only can be done in California. But the second reason is because there's no refinery cap- capacity in California. That refinery capacity has gone way, way, way down. So there's a, that's a choke point for actually for the rest of the country, too. It seems really hard for people to understand on the left that we still drive cars. We still need energy. And it is true that it'd be great if we all had windmills and solar. That'd be fantastic. We nice, nice and quiet and whatever. But right now, that's not on the horizon. We have to have uh, oil exploration, exploitation of energy resources and refineries. And we have to have them online all the time. And uh, the reason we have to is because stuff like this happens and we nobody wants to pay $8 a gallon for gas. This seems like, you know, even, <laughs> even a Marxist pro- economics professor at the most far left Ivy League's university would still have to concede that point. And they have trouble understanding that all of their crackpot environmental um, faddish regulations have consequences. And those consequences end up at the gas station, end up costing their voters money. And that is not a good position to be in. No, it's not. And so the actual good martini is obviously not the White House position here. Uh, It's a letter they got very quickly after that statement uh, from both the American Petroleum Institute and the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers. And they even have, you know, numbered points here. So uh, they they did it politely, but you can tell behind the scenes they were seething here, Rob. So they talk about uh, refineries being at or near maximum utilization, which, of course, begs the need for more refineries. But you might have some people saying, well, how can you blame the administration then for, for uh, you know, cracking down on the energy companies if the refineries are at full capacity? Well, point three, about half of U.S. refinery shutdowns 
recently are conversions to renewable fuel production. So we're not doing the refining that we were doing before. Other important suppliers to the U.S., including refineries in Canada, are being similarly converted. Our companies are proud of these investments and believe in the future of lower carbon liquid transportation fuels, both renewable and traditional. These investments cannot be easily or quickly undone. So it's not like you can pull a lever, flip a switch, and all of a sudden you can refine crude oil again. And they also point out, Number four, U.S. refining is a long cycle business. Refiners do not make multi-billion dollar investments based on short term returns. They look at long term supply and demand fundamentals and make investments as appropriate. To that end, following on your campaign promise to, quote, end fossil fuel, consider just some of the policy and investment signals being sent by various federal agencies and allied state governments to the market about our refining industry. EPA just finalized a light-duty vehicle standard that incentivizes at least 17% electric vehicle sales by 2026. For context, in the first quarter of this year, EV sales accounted for less than 5% of new car sales, despite rising gasoline prices. Uh, also, the administration has encouraged California and other states to go even further, working to prohibit the sale of new gasoline-powered vehicles in just over a decade. And on and on it goes, uh, because Democrats either don't want to admit or don't understand that fuel prices are not based on what's happening right now. It's based on what is expected to happen in the future. And when the only message they hear is, we're going to kill your industry, that's going to make a big problem. And it's understandable these firms don't want to invest for a decade from now when the administration is promising they'll be dead. Yeah, the price is set by the replacement cost, right? So <laughs> you can't really say, well, wait a minute. This is oil from two years ago before we took over and went insane. What I love about this letter, first of all, this letter, everyone should read it because it's really great. And you could see, I mean, I want to see all the versions of it because you know there was some, you know, it was meaner than it's than it came out. It, it, you know that the sentence following on your campaign promise to, quote, end fossil fuel, consider just some of the policy and investment signals being sent by various federal agencies. You know, that was a meaner Frankly, that was a lot bitchier when they wrote it. The first draft, you know, that was kind of nasty. And somebody said, well, let's not. I mean, you're right, sir, but let's not say that. So <laughs> I want to see all the drafts. But what I love about this is that it was you, you know that this was building up in them, right? The letters, you know, was dated two days ago. So they, it was a really fast turnaround. You know that this stuff has been sitting there and they've been waiting to say it because Oil company executives, I mean, I mean, I'm not saying that they're Albert Schweitzer, but they have been saying for years that actually it isn't about what happens now. It's about what our planning is in the future. And you can't just turn a switch and suddenly refine uh, crude oil, even if you sold all of the uh, national defense, you know, um, whatever that you know, reserve uh, in Elk Hills and in Bakersfield, if you sold all that, you still got to refine it. So they, they've been saying this for years. We've been ignoring them and saying, build more uh, solar panels and build more um, uh, wind farms. And they've been saying, OK, but what if something happens? And now something's happened. Um, this is always the case with uh, environmentalists. Um, it's uh, it's a, a, a party of regulation. They spread re regulation like confetti. Right. And then when um, it, the weather gets bad or it starts to you know look a little tight, then they wonder why. The grown-ups weren't secretly uh, refining oil and building refineries and drilling oil um, anyway. It's a really, it is, a, it is the child-parent relationship, right? Children always like, shut up, let me do what I want. I don't want to, you know. And then when the parents actually do uh, do something like that, their children are like, hey, wait a minute, you're supposed to take care of me. Um, 
that's exactly what's happening here. And unfortunately, it's the, the people paying the price, people who always pay the price, which is like <laughs> Americans trying to drive to work. Rob, I remember years ago, I mean, like when Bill Press was still on the air, I don't remember if it was Crossfire or where he bounced around to somewhere else, where he was specifically saying, uh, we're going to make progress with the green agenda. That's not how he phrased it at the time, but basically getting away from fossil fuels when we can make gas prices the same as they are in Europe. So this has been an actual goal of the left for a long time. This is not some sort of, oh, I don't know how we got here, but as long as we're here, let's move uh, exponentially forward with this Green New Deal. It's crazy. For, for some, I think it is, but for some, it really isn't. Although I have seen a bunch of true environmentalists saying things like, this is actually good. This is actually going to hasten our move to renewable fuels. As if the move to renewable fuels is something that is being held up by business strategy rather than by legitimate R&D concerns. I mean, you, we don't have the solar cell capacity to save that kind of energy. We don't that wind farms don't generate enough energy. We don't we don't have that yet. I, I'm, I think that we probably will soon, but we don't have it now. And if you're arguing about that stuff and you're not also demanding that the United States start building state of the art nuclear power facilities, then you're just not serious either about energy policy or about the climate. When gas is $2 a gallon, um, nobody has to face these hard choices. But when gas gets to be 5 or $6 a gallon, then suddenly politicians and progressive politicians are faced with really tough choices. And this hymn book of blaming the oil companies just isn't going to work, and everybody knows it. All right, let's uh, talk about our first sponsor of the day, brought to you in part by NetChoice. As Americans, innovation has always been what makes us different. America's tech industry outpaces the world, and we have the most innovative companies that power our economy and our way of life. And the reason for that is because of free market innovation. That is what makes us number one. But some in Washington want to put big government in charge of America's top innovators, attacking our own in the name of competition, while our true competitors like Europe and China close the gap. NetChoice believes congressional conservatives must stand for American innovation, not big government. Rejecting progressive antitrust proposals. They encourage you to tell your senator to oppose Senator Amy Klobuchar's Senate Resolution 2992, SR 2992. Learn more about the fight and send a letter to your representatives at netchoice.org 2992. This message was brought to you by NetChoice. All right, Rob, on to our bad martini now, and it's been... Quite a week for uh, statewide elected officials in Michigan. Just yesterday, Emily and I talked about how the state attorney general, Dana Nessel, called for a drag queen in every school. Now, Gretchen Whitmer and her uh, friends on the Michigan State Board of Education are opposing a ballot initiative already passed by the state legislature that would provide vouchers for more than one million students to attend the school of their choice. Free beacon with this story. The State Education Board adopted a resolution on Tuesday against the Let Michigan Kids Learn ballot initiative, which is similar to legislation used in dozens of other states and would allow families to use tax credits to send their children to private schools. If it receives around 340,000 signatures, the proposal will be included on the November ballot without the governor's signature. Whitmer in October had vetoed bills containing the school choice tax credits, which had been passed by the Michigan House and Senate, saying they created, quote, tax shelters for the wealthy. Uh, Democrats and members of the National Teachers Unions have consistently opposed school choice initiatives, and Biden's education department drew fire in May when it proposed to uh, cut federal funding for some 
charter schools. Uh, the dirty secret here that the uh, the left doesn't want you to know, of course, is that the people who most need these uh, opportunities are people who are poor, uh, and often those are uh, minorities uh, in big cities and urban areas, and uh, those are the people that they claim to champion, but uh, they're perfectly happy to keep them in the worst possible schools. So, Rob, what do you make of uh, Whitmer drawing a line in the sand here to give parents as few options as possible? Yeah, I mean, I wonder if she sees any connection between the drag queen in every school initiative and the school choice initiative. <laughs> I don't I, it's like my I guess it's all it's all that cause and effect today. I just don't know if, if there if at any point, maybe I don't know, she's brushing her teeth or I don't know what she's about going to bed or whatever, or whatever. At some moment, she's making a cup of tea. She suddenly looks up like, you know, you know, when you suddenly have a realization and she's like, oh, my God, these things are connected. Parents actually want to have a say in what goes on in their child's school. To me, it's sort of baffling, especially. I mean, this is sort of a, for me, it's a moral issue because uh, giving parents there, there's a part of it, which is just the, the straight up libertarian in me, which is giving parents the right to choose the education they want for the children. That's true. But the second part of me is the sort of free market improvement part, which is that we all know that the schools that are the worst, that do the worst are the ones that they're not necessarily resource constrained but are in sclerotic public teachers union controlled, which they all are, but the worst kind of school district. And the only way to get reform, the only way to get uh, improvement is to allow parents to express choice. Some aren't going to do that. Some are, but we all know the post office is better because of FedEx and FedEx and UPS is better because of FedEx. Everything gets better when you have competition and that's what we need in education. There's no reason why we should have it uh, in hamburgers and supermarkets and mail and um, postal services and not have it in education, which is the most important thing. There's this strange fealty that these people have to this teachers union and the national sort of teaching monopoly that you'd think after two years of systemic institutional failure by these public schools, by their flagrant and, and arrogant denial of any kind of parent rights. I mean, they closed the schools in New York. They did everything they did. They did last. And parents suddenly were at home and listening to what was going on on these Zoom calls. And think, wait a minute, I, I could do I could do a better job. Um, th this is not the time for the school districts to be less responsive. If they want to survive, it's time for them to be more responsive. I mean, if I were a conservative politician, I'd be only talking about schools and school excellence, because I think parents are finally ready to take a risky step, which it is a risky step, which is to is to go for a voucher system or school choice. That is always the, the problem with convincing parents. They think they agree with it philosophically. It's just practically they have they have their concern because they, what, what is that going to mean for my kid's school? That's what they always say. Well, now they know. Now they know what happened. The worst that happens is the kids home on Zoom. And if these kids home on Zoom and actually learning, that's better than in a school that is unresponsive and arrogantly dismissive of their needs. Michigan does have a decent uh, policy for public school choice. But the thing that drives me crazy, and, and I think it's just the worst possible response from the unions and other uh, opponents of ideas of, of vouchers and, and other programs like it, is, well, this is going to devastate the public schools. Well, why will it devastate the public schools? It's because you know that there are better options out there. Uh, and just like you said, when there's more competition, it should make you better instead of terrified uh, that you might have to change something to provide a better product for people who want to send their kids to school. Yeah. Well, you have to pass a law requiring people only buy from you. 
Um, that suggests that you're not as confident about your product as possible. And and the re- reality is, is that I really, I don't, I mean, I, I think there's some there are great teachers there. Yes. There's some great teaching and learning going on in these schools. The idea of a school choice movement or a school voucher movement is to unlock that greatness, to unlock, to unlock their ability to teach the best. There, I mean, look, uh, conservatives and liberals alike are going to have to, if in, a, in a school choice world that I envision, and I'm not king, they're going to have to accept a whole lot of stuff, right? You, you know, conservatives are going to have to ex- accept the fact that some parents are going to send their kids to a radical atheist lesbian poet school. That's accredited. And liberals are going to have to accept the fact that some conservatives are going to send them their kids to a school that's like, you know, uh, super right wing and only teaches uh, Milton Friedman and um, I don't know, some other conservative thing. Right. Radical acceptance, radical tolerance is the keystone to this. And we trust the system and we trust parents and it will get better. Parents are very, very good consumers for their children. And when we unleash that power, we're going to unleash a whole reform in education and a total blossoming in this country of true, rigorous, practical, applicable economy building education for young people. You also made such a good point a minute ago, Rob, about how big of an issue this should be, especially in this midterm year. I feel like right now Republicans are looking at this election year going inflation's at the highest in 40 years. Uh, People can't stand Joe Biden. All we got to do is not screw up and uh, we're going to coast in there. Look, uh, there's never going to be a better time than right after this pandemic to jump on the school choice issue. It's a political winner every time and it's never been more needed than right now. People are paying attention to this. Do it. You can turn a moderate-sized wave into a tidal wave if you do this, and for the right reasons, not just to win, but to actually do stuff to improve people's lives, whether it's in Washington or or preferably at the state and local level. Agree. Totally. Well, let's agree on something else. And that's They're the not going to listen to us, though. You know that. <laughs> that makes too much sense. So, yeah, that's a highly unlikely. But... Uh, Listen to us on this, though. You can get a phenomenal deal on the My Slippers at MyPillow.com. I love My Slippers. I'm literally looking at them right now as I look at my feet. They are so comfortable. They are so warm in the wintertime, and they're just great to walk around the house in. I was never a slippers guy, but they sent me them to try out, and oh, man, I do love these things. Love the sheets and the pillows, too, but not only are the slippers great, you can save a ton of money on them right now. You can save $90, regularly $139.98, the blowout price for the slippers, $49.98 with the promo code Martini. And these are great slippers. They took two years to develop their exclusive four-tier cushioning system, which includes the MyPillow patented fill, the comfort memory foam that helps prevent fatigue, patented impact gel, which is fantastic, and their indoor-outdoor sole you can wear in or out all day long. Made with quality leather suede, available in a variety of styles, colors, and sizes. And there's a 60-day money-back guarantee, one-year limited warranty, which for a pair of slippers is amazing. Go to MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104 for the My Slippers at only $49.95. While you're there, take advantage of the deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the BOGO, buy one, get one extravaganza on bedsheets, MyPillows, and more. Visit MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104 today for the most comfortable slippers you will ever own. And you'll get Mike's book for free. MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104. The chance for nuclear war increases every day that the war in Ukraine continues. I'm Bill Walton. 
on the latest edition of The Bill Walton Show, national security expert Brandon Weikert and I also discuss how China is weaker than Russia in one key area, why Taiwan's defenses are dangerously weak, and how Joe Biden wants to make the same mistake with Iran that we did with China. Follow The Bill Walton Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Rob, a quick follow-up on another one of yesterday's stories, and that was uh, the open letter from essentially a pro-abortion terrorist group called Jane's Revenge saying, oh, yeah, you know all those pregnancy centers that have been vandalized or burned? Uh, Yeah, we did all those in all those cities across the country. And I said yesterday that uh, I would be surprised if the FBI actually took that seriously. Well, we are hearing today that the FBI is looking into those. And when people have admitted doing it, it shouldn't take a great deal of effort to put a case together. Uh, So hopefully they are serious about that. And uh, I will happily say I was proven wrong if that's the case. So uh, we'll see where those investigations go. But the weird part to me, as I said, uh, maybe earlier in the week, uh, Rob, is that how is there hostility to these pregnancy resource centers? They used to be known as crisis pregnancy centers. These are basically there to help people who want to have their baby, but they're perhaps in some difficult financial situations or they're just uncertain how they can provide for the child, but ultimately they want to have the baby. And somehow that's evil. I don't know why helping people in that situation is evil. Uh, Free Beacon, again, uh, talking about a Justice Department official who investigates attacks on reproductive health care facilities who has been a staunch critic of pro-life crisis pregnancy centers, uh, many of which, of course, have been vandalized uh, in recent weeks. Uh, Civil Rights Division Chief Kristen Clark criticized the centers following a Supreme Court decision issued in their favor in 2018. Clark said the centers, which counsel pregnant women on alternatives to abortion, were, quote, harmful and predatory against women of color. She referred to them with the hashtag, quote, expose fake clinics. And it says Clark's stance on the centers offers a potential explanation for the Justice Department's refusal to investigate a string of attacks on pro-life centers since the May 2nd leak of a draft Supreme Court decision that appeared to be preparing to overturn Roe v. Wade. So again, uh, we have an update to the story that hopefully the FBI is actually taking seriously and not just checking a box from a PR perspective. But Rob, if you're pro choice. The idea is you respect uh, what the mother wants to do here. So this is just odd that, okay, these women want to have the baby. They want to get some help. And somehow the people who are helping them are evil. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're losing an argument or, you know, you're losing your, I don't know, your moral authority, even when you simply cannot imagine on a fundamental uh, spiritual and ethical question, right? That, you know, we all have a soul. We all have to think about how we feel about these things. But if you believe on a fundamental level that no decent person disagrees with you, that no decent pregnant woman could uh, have a philosophical, religious, spiritual, ethical problem with abortion, that that is simply impossible, then I think you've already lost. And I think that's what we're seeing in the country, right? When the country is like, Basically shrugging, you know, every poll in the country says, ah, yeah, we don't know. Probably not. Life begins at conception, probably begins sometime in the first trimester. You know, that's pretty much what it is. That's what the Dodd law is in, in Massachusetts. That's what the law is pretty much actually with, with varying degrees of strict uh, of strictness uh, in Europe. But these zealots believe that at no point would you ever, if you were a pregnant woman, ever hesitate about getting an abortion. And that is just bizarre and tone deaf and I mean, it's weirdly chilling, but it also suggests, I think, a pol- you know, we're talking about politics here. So a political opportunity for the pro-life movement 
which is to say to people like, okay, I understand that you're conflicted here. Let's let's talk about it. I mean, that is that is the truly Christian way to go about changing a social definition of a very important thing, right? You first start by coming together. You first start by trying to erase lines. And these guys, these pro-choice guys seem absolutely adamant that the people who are even conflicted about abortion rights are evil, bad, should be silenced, and that none of those people can even possibly ever be a woman or a mother. And that just statistically, we know that's completely false. And um, I, I and I suspect they're going to continue to scream into the wind and try this terrible strategy until they lose. What else can you do if you refuse to persuade people, if you refuse to treat them with dignity? Unfortunately, like what are you left with? You're left with probably acts of violence, right? That's what that's what you do when persuasion stops. Oh, if this decision comes down, the violence is only going to pick up. Uh, but the thing that I noticed, and you probably picked up on this, Rob, too, is after the the leaked opinion came out, uh, different administration officials were asked about this. And one that I remember in particular was Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, who tried to make this case that, uh, you know, economically disadvantaged women really, really needed this because otherwise they were, you know, not going to reach their full potential. First of all, how could you possibly know that? And, And secondly, the implication from her and others seems to be the babies are better off dead than poor. And I think that is something that needs to be confronted and confronted strongly. It's also a bizarre, bizarre argument because people have been so much poorer throughout history. I mean, the uh, you know, I just read the statistic the other day, so um, it could be completely wrong. But essentially, if you add up all this basket of things that you and I have, middle class Americans have even even working class Americans have, they have a better quality of life. They are richer in a whole array of ways than J.P. Morgan was in 1912 or 15, right? Um, Because we have better medicine, we have better health, we have better food, we have better shelter, everything's better. So we all know parents, right? Or young parents. And then one of the things that young parents before their parents always ask me, is this the right time? Is this the right time in my career? How much money we have in the bank? Is this the right time? And older parents always say to the younger uh, would-be parents, like, there's never a right time. Don't wait for the sign, just do it. You just do it. There's not a right time to have children. And there's this weird attitude and very strange. It's very disconnected to reality, to the way people really live their lives on the parts of these sort of like progressive thinkers that this is an economic activity that people engage in, that it's a rational economic activity that people engage in, that uh, it can be um, shaped and regulated and channeled into a more productive way. And all of those premises lead to a very ugly society a very ugly way to live and to think about your life and to try to control other people and to be controlled. And I think most Americans like know that, even if they're essentially kind of ultimately pro-choice, they kind of know that this stuff is nuts. And it's just so strange to me that there's nobody in that world who sees the world and life the way normal people do. I just find that it's just sort of baffling. It's it's uh, depressing. It's It's depressing to me that Pro-choice progressives don't even see where the conversation should be. They, it's, it's absolutely obvious to them, and it's creeping everybody out. And I, you know, it's bad politics, it's bad spirituality, it's bad ethics, it's just bad being a human being.
the radicals are running the show. There's no question about it, particularly on that issue, but on others as well. Uh, environment, like we talked about with the energy problem before. So, uh, Rob, not exactly the most optimistic way uh, to end the week, but uh, at least it is the weekend. So that is our <laughs> that is our positive takeaway. So enjoy it. Thanks for being with us a couple times this week, and we'll talk to you down the road. Enjoyed it. Anytime. Rob Long, contributing editor at National Review Online, co-founder of Ricochet, co-host of the Glop podcast, host of the Martini Shot podcast. Uh, I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Uh, Jim Garrity will be back on Monday, so please join us then. Uh, in the meantime, subscribe to the podcast. If you haven't already, tell a friend about us as well. Thank you so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. They're a huge help to us. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us all on Twitter. Rob is at RCBL. Jim is at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great weekend and please join us on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Happy Father's Day, everyone. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. And the obvious challenge to that is the media blackout. Um, you know, if, if this were in the other direction, if if the, if the if the difference here was um, you know going in the other direction, then it would be nonstop in the same way. In fact, actually, we have a pretty neat case study in this with the Russia hoax itself. It was nonstop coverage from the media that was essentially doing in journalistic gymnastics to fabricate a conspiracy theory. I'm Emily Jashinsky of the Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.